Hello and welcome to the weekly reboot, your regular Friday debrief coming from the Agile community here in Melbourne and beyond. This week I'm very pleased to bring you an interview with Neil Kelly. Neil is a well-known consultant and internationally known coach in Melbourne and beyond. Now a few notes on recording of this podcast. We were in a lovely little cafe called The Little Elephant in Hyatt, but because of a microphone issue I had, I had a background mic on and you'll hear a lot of background cafe noise in the recording. I've tried to pull it back as much as possible, but as a result, my questions are pretty faint. That said, Neil's mic was working perfectly and he comes across loud and clear, exactly as he sounded to me in the cafe. We also went over their closing time by a long way. They were super decent to let us overstay their closing time for about 20 minutes and you'll hear that we went outside just at the very end. Neil's blog and website can be found at www.neilkillick.com, which I'll link to in the show notes. It's an excellent resource and I use it often in my day-to-day work. It comes highly recommended by me and plenty of others for implementing change in your organisation. Hi. Hello. So I was excited to hear you're working at Toyota. I probably can't say much about what we're working on, but um, yeah, yeah, I'm working with Toyota at the moment. And is it all the lean stuff that we dream about and that I talk about when I'm coaching teams. I think they're trying to get there. I I think in terms of the like the software side it's a work in progress. So so a a lot of the um, sort of the concepts from the Toyota manufacturing and what have you are are, you know people are trained on. Oh thank you. Um, But in terms of how wide do they get used? You know, I think I think it I think it would be probably a mixed bag. Yeah. Kind of like anywhere, really, I suppose. So, how long have you been in Australia, and what brought you out here originally? Um, so, I have been here. Well, I moved here twenty, just over twenty years ago. Um, and I was what the reason I came out here was I was working for an Australian company at the time. Well, I was working well. I was actually working with IBM yeah. and uh, this Australian company, insurance company, we were doing a project with, uh, they're called Huon, um, I think they're now called the Innovation Group. Um, and uh, yeah, working on that project with the Huon team and then I eventually got offered a job with Huon um, and then they needed someone to come and set up a Java development team in Melbourne. Yeah, so that's what, uh, so I took the opportunity and. And did, yeah, the first 15 or so years of my career as a developer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I have been, yeah, 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 quite a few years now. I forget when I got naturalised, but yeah, it's been quite a few years now. Yeah. 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 I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I lived in England for eight and a half years. I don't know if we've had this chat before, but. Sometimes I feel quite sentimental about silly things. Mm, mm. Um, I was just listening to Erwin Welsh actually in an interview with Richard Wilder on Conversations. And there is quite a lot of cultural things, I think, from the 90s, because that's when I was there, 90s, mm, mm, mm. that I missed. Is there anything you miss? Do you go back much? I don't go back much, no. I've been back a, two or three times. Yeah. Um, Are your folks there? Uh, my dad is, yeah, yeah. My mum passed away a few years ago, but um, my dad's still there, um, and my brother and sister. Uh, but um, funnily enough, the things I miss most are, <laughs> well, curry, which isn't really English. Um, uh, I just can't, you just, well, particularly when I first moved here, you couldn't, you could not get a good curry in Melbourne. Yeah. It's better now, like you can get, uh, you know, there's quite a good variety now, but it's still yeah. not quite, the same as the curry you get in England. Yeah. Uh, I don't really know why that is, but. Um, I've, heard some, I've heard it's because of the chefs in England are Bangladeshi. Maybe it could be. It could be a yeah. It could be um because yeah, I know that yeah, different regions in India have sort of different uses of spices and flavors. So it could be that. It could be that just the style of flavor they use. Um, I prefer. I don't know. Um, and football as well. So, yeah. Proper football, not like <laughs> not Australian football. football yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, as in, so obviously I watch. I get to watch all the games here. In fact, I get to watch more games live here than I would in England because they don't show the games like the Saturday afternoon games on on live in England. Whereas here we get all of the games on Optus Sports. So 
So I get to watch more football, but um, it's not the same as, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, going down the pub with your friends. Yeah. You were immersed, you know, immersed in the culture, but, uh, along with actually going to, so I'm a Tottenham fan, I used to go to every home game. Um, yes, we're in the Champions League final. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So, so very exciting. Are you from England? Is it from London? From London, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, South, South London. I was well, born and grew up in South London. When I uh, went back to London, um, uh, after living in Australia for actually the first three years, I actually moved back to uh, London for a couple of years. Um, and I moved to North London so I could go to the football and, um, yeah. So yeah, I miss, I'm, I'm, yeah, I miss that kind of, um, especially in the summer, there's a, there's a real kind of nice sort of after work culture. Yeah. Which I, I don't find as much of it, as much of it here. Mm, I think it's just also the population over there. So well, yeah, that's... So you've got more people, yeah. uh, you know, more people will be passionate about what you're passionate yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, what do you think of Brexit? <laughs> oh my God, I didn't, I didn't know this was going to be a political... Yeah, I didn't know either. <laughs> um, I didn't know either. Um, I look, uh, part of me is that, you know what, well, it's not none of my business anymore. I, you know, I, I haven't lived in the UK for many, many years. Um, so I kind of try and keep out of it a little bit. Um, yeah, but uh, it seems... Well, it was just... Ex another example of a really poorly handled uh, political endeavour. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever your, I suppose, whatever your uh, belief, you know, whatever side of the fence you sit, the fact of the matter is, people weren't in, uh, get, uh, allowed to make an informed decision. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a question. The question they were asked, you know, the, the, uh, I guess the, the, the underlying detail of that and the conse consequences and the pros and cons weren't articulated. It was just. So, you know, now a lot of people who voted one way, you know, uh, wish they had voted the other way. So, um, so it, it, look, with any, anything like that, it, you've got to be able to make informed decisions. And, you know, I, 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 think, I think the country was, uh, was sold, a, sold a lemon there in terms, of, uh, in terms of the question they were asked, yeah. So I think about all the our communities, our communities around Melbourne, around Australia that I know, there's, there seems to be like a few camps that people have come from. So you've either been through a some Corp transformation or a Telstra or you've worked at Fullworks or you've worked at Seed or mm. REA, something like that. Mm, mm. You're, I think of you as the player cohort because I keep running yeah. into people yep. who yep. have worked at players. Yep. Yep. Um, Tell me about, is that where you first discovered? No, oh, okay. no, no. Um, first exposure to Scrum uh, was as a developer for, I think it was the EDS group. Oh, yeah. Well, what I do remember is that Chris Chan was the product owner, I believe, oh, wow. on the team. Um, that was my first exposure to Scrum. And uh, yeah, I, I hated it. Really? <laughs> well, I hated. I said what I hated. I hated. Um, so for the first time in my, in my life, I was forced to pair program. Wow. I'd never pair program before, and I, I found that very uncomfortable. Um, forced to. Well, yeah, it was actually yeah. So well, I suppose forced is a strong word, but well, but that's essentially every, well everything we either had to pair on or it had to be. Uh, like peer reviewed, um, it was mostly pairing though, and yeah, and I didn't enjoy that. Um, I I didn't enjoy having someone over my shoulder, and I didn't enjoy being over someone else's shoulder either. Um, it's just yeah, just found that uncomfortable. So I guess you know, I guess I guess why a lot of people a lot of people struggle with it. Um, yeah, when I went to school, we literally couldn't do a PowerPoint presentation without hearing someone like yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was just that kind of that dogmatic let's apply everything about it to yeah. everything else. Yeah. Do. And that was the other thing, it was my first um, we were again forced in inverted commas to do T D D and I'd never done T D D. I'd I always I was I would I was always writing tests for for my code. Yeah. Like even before there were unit test frameworks. Mm. I was I was, you know, just um, 
you know, using them, you know, like I was a Java programmer for many years and, you know, I just use the main function to just write a, a test to actually call what I'm doing and make sure that I'm, you know, the input match, uh, the output matches what I expect, et cetera, et cetera. So the, I suppose the mindset I was always doing and then when test frameworks came along, I started using them. Yeah. But I just never, I suppose, had come across the actual sort of explicit uh, discipline of, you know, write a small, small failing test, get it to pass, refactor. Um, uh, so again, that was a, a difficult uh, thing to overcome. Um, but in terms of agile, like um, it's difficult to know exactly when I first came across, you know, agile like manifesto or whatever. And yeah. um, I do remember when I did come across it, it basically just validated how I'd all, all, how I was already working. It wasn't like, oh, that looks like an interesting new way of working, which mm. a lot of people do nowadays. Mm. I was just like, yeah, well, I'm already doing that stuff. At, at last, yeah, this, at last there seems to be a, an official thing out there in the software world that, that says that. Because yeah. obviously at the, at the time, in the sort of 90s, everything was very heavy, rigid, yeah. like, um, yeah, J2EE, EJBs, like everything was just overcomplicated and heavy mm. and RUP and all of this, all of this stuff. Um, so it was good to have a a sort of statement that sort of said, hey, you know, there's some people out there working in a, in a way that is, yeah, to me, just seems the natural way to do work. Mm. Um, so that was a nice kind of feeling. Um, and then I think that sort of, I think, well, particularly the Scrum project and everything sparked my interest, I suppose, in the whole thing. Because mm. I started to, like, I suppose, notice a lot of the dynamics that happen when you work in that way. Mm. And the problems with it and the challenges and but also the good things about it and so that's what started my learning journey with that and you know getting trained in scrum and just reading more about it and getting interested in it and, and then finding out that how it's linked with agile and you know just that um yeah all that sort of stuff started to happen i suppose yeah back then so yeah so i'd say whilst i was already working in an agile way it's kind of pre well, I mean, my, my professional IT career started in um, sort of 95. Um, I'd say sort of late, 90, late 90s, I was already working in an agile way, but I probably didn't find out about agile until probably 2005, maybe. Mm. Like, you know, so I was, it just wasn't something that crossed my path, I suppose. It's surprised yeah. how it's taken and, and still there are so many exceptions and corruption um, so much divided opinion part look to be honest with you I'm not surprised um, because um, look I, I, I think I think it's a couple of aspects to it one because it's very it was very specifically written for software development yeah. but yet it gets cast as a kind of catch-all um, way of improving organizations mm. so it's not hardly surprising that people outside of the software realm are, are confused about what it yeah. what it means and um, so there's that aspect that aspect of it the second aspect of it is that it became a commodity mm. so it's, it's a good thing so therefore it becomes a thing and then it became you know capital a agile and then all of the spin-offs there you know of, of, of all of that what and at the same time, you know, the, the Scrum certification train started. And um, so we're now in a world where it's actually not only a, not only a um, non-agilists actively hating on it, yeah. but even agilists are, 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 you know, are, are divided or, and move, in moving away from agile. And, and I've kind of found myself doing that myself, yeah. you know, um, obviously not moving away from the, the, the principles because it's how I naturally work. Yeah. So I believe in that way of working, more, but more the, because, because every, all of the talk about agile is, is the thing agile, mm. rather than the, the, the way of working. And, yeah. and, um, and, it, and it, just, it just is actually, um, it just is a distraction. And it's actively um, destructive in many cases. So what I actually do now is, is try and avoid talking about it in, in the workplace mm. and just focus on what it is we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, and even if conversations come, come up, well, no, no, I, I won't, 
I won't avoid conversations about it, but mm. if, if it's used in the context of a piece of work we're doing, I'll just, again, try and move away from that language and, and talk about what it is, you know, the actual work itself, yeah. rather than the, 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 you know, should we be doing X, Y, or Z in, mm. in order to be compatible with Agile? It's like... Yeah. It's hard though, isn't it? Yeah, people yeah. have, you know, not everyone wants to do a deep dive and understand everything. No, and nor should they, exactly, yeah. And so, Yeah. Look, I, I do. I feel like whilst there, whilst it seems like you know the industry is all moving in the direction of sort of large-scale agile transformations and what have you, I also kind of feel that that's going on in the background. But then there's also you know the human beings involved in that. When you talk to them, they're kind of they're kind of saying, "Hey, yeah, we just need some practical help." With something specific that we're trying to trying to achieve, mm. rather than we need help with this agile transformation. Yeah. Um, and for me, like that's that's all we can ever do because it's it's too vague and general uh, and and a term to to be meaningful as a goal. Mm. Everyone has different opinions and ideas about what it means. You know, like every time I do agile fundamentals training, I ask people in the room you know what is agile mm. and and you know a room full of 15 people and I'll get 15 different answers and then I and then you know every single time I run a session I'll get different answers mm. um, so how could you how can you frame an organizational goal yeah. around something that's so different in and wide and varied in its in what it means yeah so um, uh, I you know if people come to me and say oh you know we're trying to transition to agile and or, or going through an agile transition, um, I, I, I won't just. I would never just come into a client on the premise of, "Can you help us with our agile transition?" Mm. It's way too, way too vague. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll work with them to define some specific short-term objectives, yeah. um, based on some real pain that they're feeling right now. Because again, if it's not based on some real pain, then it would just be swept under the carpet as oh that's we're doing that in phase three of our agile transformation we don't need to do any any of that now so it's got to be a real uh, pain point and then yeah short term to, to give an imperative for doing something about it um, and it can be something really really small but the point is to do something concrete and and something that is you know people feel pain with and therefore they want to do something about it because if they don't if it's just framed in, in something around, oh, we want to be more agile with this, or we want to start doing stand-ups, and can you help us get better at stand-ups? Mm. The problem with that is that there's no, there's no, there's, there's no real objective or pain point that's causing. It's just, it's just, you know, you impose some new process, and then you're just fixing the process in of itself, mm. rather than saying, like, what is our actual objective here? Mm. Is is our objective actually is that people, um, people in different departments aren't talking to each other but we're trying to you know we're, we're trying to embark on initiatives that that, um, that we can get quicker to market with and and we want to do that by engaging people across different departments together mm. um, you know more synchronized mm. um, you know how, how can we accomplish that mm. and then you can start talking about you know uh, activities and things you can do that to accomplish that mm. rather than just saying right we're, we're, we're starting down our agile path let's get stand-ups happening mm. let's get every team doing stand-ups okay that for me is, is, is you know, it's a, a cargo cult approach. It, it's not, it's not actually, no, like the, what will happen is there'll be some people who go, yes, you know, we're going agile. The, the people who are already agile people will, uh, will, will rejoice. Yeah. Everyone else will just be going, what's the point of this? And, 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 and unless, it, unless it's executed really, really well and, and with the right support around it, then, then it's guaranteed there's going to be people hating on it and going, what's the point of this? And um, So just don't start with uh, that. Always start with what is the thing we're trying to achieve, then getting the, getting the right people together, setting the imperative for them and saying, look, it's really important for us as a business to get better at X, Y, and Z. So 
we are going to embark on a little, um, you know, over the next three months, we're all going, to, all going to take active steps in getting better at X, Y, and Z, all of us. So, you know, as in, this isn't management saying you need to get better at X, Y, Z. It's we all need to get better at X, Y, Z. So what are the things we can do to get better at X, Y, Z? And, you know, as managers, we're going to, we're going to define what we can do, as teams can define what they can do, and then, we, and then we work together and support each other in getting there, right? That's, that's my approach to... Yeah. Yeah, and if they do, and that's fine. If they do, look for me. It's just a part of you know. I, I've because it's a longer sales conversation, right? Isn't it? So well, to about, my very first. You might want this, yeah. Let me tell you how I can help you. Well, my very first entry in software development was as a consultant. So, very early in my career, I learned the skills of, of you know understanding the problem space. You know, and, and not just taking things on face value and, and really, you know, looking at the ultimate goal to be to serve the need rather than to do what someone is telling me. So, and, and to this day, you know, that skill is what I still use. So, you know, anytime there's a situation like that where it's something is being, you know, talked about as this is what we want to do, if, if, if I can't understand why they want to accomplish that, then we're not likely to end up with a good outcome. But um, you know, more pertinently, what happens is when I actually ask the customer to explain what, why they want that thing, they actually can't explain it often. So then I help, you know, and they feel embarrassed about that sometimes. So I help them with that. I go, well, let's have a think about this. Where did this come from? Where did, the, where did even this imperative come from? You know, and then and start to uncover the real need or the pain point from the business perspective as to as to why this has even become a, a thing, and then you can start actually you know addressing the right things rather than going off on tangents and setting up all these processes and practices that actually could be nothing to do with the thing that, that actually is the real problem that you're trying to you're trying to solve. So um, yeah, so um, I think the consulting skill that I've developed over the years is serves me well nowadays. Even if I'm not in a consultant role, you still need to be able to interpret what someone's saying, the underlying need of what they're saying, yeah. so that you don't just um, end up going down the wrong path. And they say, well, that's great, but it doesn't really give me what I need. And they say, oh, what is it you need? And they tell you, and you go, oh, man, I should have actually asked that you know, a few weeks ago when I started this. Mm. So that upfront conversation is very, very important. And what's, you know, I think what's funny is that the, the any, doing anything up front often gets frowned upon. It's like, well, that's not agile if we, if we do too much, uh, too much of that up front. Um, I, ran a, I ran a meetup the other day about story slicing. And, you know, I talked about, um, you know, how important it is to do what I call capability slicing um, up front and, and come up with as many options as you can. And, and you know, and, and so some of the groups, uh, I gave them a five minute exercise. Some of the groups came up with over a thousand options from the, from the original story I started with. I freaked people out by saying, give me over a hundred stories in five minutes. And everyone was freaking out, going, how is this possible? And one group came up with over a thousand. So, yeah. um, so exploring the options, exploring the problem space and taking the time to do that like up front. Yeah. Um, it's so important because how can we maximize you know the amount of work we don't do if we don't know what's what's possible mm-hmm. we've got to be able to say these are our options this is the best option to focus on right now we can defer everything else here mm-hmm. or we can eliminate these ones and defer these ones you have to you have to explore the problem space up front mm-hmm. so that's that's basically um, i find that a lot of agile teams and companies don't do that mm-hmm. they just they dive in mm-hmm. um, and they haven't done that exploring the problem space so so when when they're incrementing they don't know what the ultimate goal is they're trying to increment to Mm. so it becomes directionless and then it's and then of course the the management senior management says oh we're not getting what we need out of agile because then what they're not seeing is progress towards the things they care about you know people are churning through stuff and delivering stuff left right and center but it's yeah but it's the but it's the it's the wrong stuff it's not the stuff so you know what i what i try and do is identify the things that 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 the people up up, um, up the top of the company care about, because they're the things that they're going to be, you know, measuring against. You know, when they're this agile transition, they're going to be looking for are these things that I think are important. Are they moving forward? Yeah. You know, whether that be a whether that be a, a product or a, um, a product initiative, or whether it be a improvement, operational improvement. If we don't know what, the, you know, the senior leaders care about improving, mm. there's a there's a massive risk we're going to go off on the completely wrong tangent and the, the agile transition will completely fail. 
be tarnished. And be tarnished. Just mention your story slicing. Um, but I know that it's linked back, and you knew that I was probably going to ask about um, hashtag my um, so first of all, I have to confirm or deny, did I inspire the, um, your involvement in the movement by forcing you to do estimation workshops? <laughs> I, I, to, to be honest, to absolutely honest with you, I don't remember, or, I remember getting interested in the topic through reading an article by Vasco, a guy called Vasco Duarte, uh, who actually ended up writing the No Estimates book. Um, he wrote an article about story points being harmful um, and I don't know how I came across it but uh, it, it actually well it sparked my interest but actually in a, in, initially in a way of what's this guy talking about he's talking absolute nonsense yeah. so um, I actually started conversing with him about it and yeah. saying I said but I said but hang on a minute but uh, you know, how do we, um, you know, how can we understand how long things are going to take if we don't put some kind of like sizing on it? And just got into this sort of debate, and I, and I kept saying, no, 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 but that doesn't work, and blah. blah. So um, anyway, what it, I guess ultimately boiled down to is, is I thought to myself, you know what? Like, I don't need to actually debate this. I can actually the things he's talking about. I can actually test myself. Mm without having to change anything about what I'm doing. Because it's actually, you know, the things he was talking about was saying, well, actually just um, count how many stories you deliver each. Now, I'd never even thought of that. Because so, when, um, when I did my scrum training, uh, you used story points for sizing stories, and then you used hours for tasks. That's how I was taught uh, scrum. Um, so that's what I thought, well, that's how you do, how you do it. Right? So if anyone was saying anything different, it's like, no, you know. Um, so, but I thought to myself, well, hang on, okay, <laughs> measuring story points each, each sprint, it's very easy to also measure the number of stories. I just never thought of doing that. Okay, so then I started measuring the number of stories. Uh, and then after, I don't know, maybe a couple of months or something, I then looked at the data and realized that what you were saying was right. And I was, or it matched, mm. it matched what what had happened to me. And I was like, mm. so I got a bit, I got a, a major aha moment. Yeah. And I actually went back to Vasco. I said, I remember, t I, I specifically remember, I tweeted, I just tweeted and said you were right. Um, so that now I was very interested in this whole topic. So now I suppose I started exploring it more. Um, what the initial trigger? Look, I obviously done lots of estimation in various you know guises in my career as software i've never even thought of it as a problem to be honest because um and it's it's weird but when i actually we, we kind of nowadays we talk about you know the bad old days of waterfall right when i look back in my earlier career uh, as a developer i was working with customers on a daily basis mm. building stuff showing it to them, getting feedback. We didn't call it Agile, it's just, it's just what we did. I don't remember ever being in a situation where I was in a development team that was like down the chain from a, you know, analyst team and a design team. And a, I, I never, I never, I, I don't think I ever experienced that. And I've worked in, I've worked in some big corporates, right? Um, I don't know if part of it is because of the nature, you know, I was the consultant mostly, so I would be maybe you know, often working with sort of smaller, smaller companies uh, in how they were doing things. But, but I worked in government projects as well. You know, I, I did a uh, project for Vic Rhodes many years ago. And again, we had, an, we had a, 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 like a traditional style contract with this is what you need to build. And, but, but yet, again, I worked with the customer every day. And, you know, we built a relationship that meant that the stuff in the contract didn't matter that much. Well, maybe, yeah. Yep. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, but all I know is I was never in a situation where I couldn't talk to the customer. I was expected to. It's like, how, 
you know, we were called analyst programmers back then. Yeah, you know, none of this separating our business analysts. I was an analyst programmer. I was expected to understand the customer problem and, and make sure I'm building the right thing. And now it seems it's like that's a separation of responsibility now. Now you you just you just code. You just write the code. You don't need to worry about whether it's the right thing or not. Oh yeah, product owner or a business analyst. Um, so, um, so the estimation thing. Again, I, I never saw it as an issue really because I was again I was. I suppose I, not that often in a situation where I felt that estimates were being used against me in some yeah, yeah, form. Yeah. I, but, but I suppose at some what point. About the pressure. About the what? Sorry. Witnessed, um, do you have teams being pressured or? Um, again. Or yeah. Creating when, something of, of little, you know, low quality. So you know, when I moved out of development, I moved more into um, like business uh, analysis in a product environment and then product management. Mm -hmm. I think it's only in those sort of years, kind of after that, that I started to observe that sort of dysfunction from the, in terms of how development teams are treated. But it never felt like something that happened to me, I don't think, or, or unless I've blocked it out of my, my memory, but, yeah. um, but I certainly started observing it uh, um, when I was not in the development teams. Um, and then, yeah, and this is where I started getting really interested in the whole dynamic between the business and the, you know, developers and, you know, all of the dysfunction that goes on. And, you know, the estimation thing is one part of that. Mm. It's one part of that sort of, you know, there's this kind of, rather than having a relationship, there are these interfaces between the business and the development teams. And one of those is, is, the, is the estimates, right? It's just one example of a, dis, of, a, of, a, of a possible dysfunction and one that I see lots and lots and lots. Yeah. And then I started to then speak to people about it, and then I started to speak at conferences about it, and I'd be asking people, and like it, it was very clear to me that it's a, a worldwide problem. Yeah. Everyone is struggling with estimation, have problems with it, there's dysfunctions with it. Uh, so just, it, you know, I, I suppose I started to realise the gravity of how much of a problem it was. Over. I think it's a, to me, it's a big area. It's like. DevOps and now estimates, I think, are two of the kind of big movements that have come out as our software development that have really improved the world. Mm. And I love the fact that it became a big thing because now I can, within community, teach and coach teams and say I don't coach estimation anymore. Yep. This is what you should do instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And funny enough, we, we used to do that back in the early thousands. We'd go, if it's all, we just go break it down. If it's, all, if it's anything that beyond a one or a three, mm. we just go, oh, is that a one? Mm. And then we break it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we just applied that same yeah. discipline naturally. Well, you say that, but it's really funny. Again, I remember this distinctly. It's funny how you remember certain little, little yeah. moments, but um, I remember when I was a Scrum Master, I was a um, newly certified Scrum Master when I was at PlayUp. And I remember running a estimation session with the team story point estimate or planning poker session and I remember one of the members of the team was um, Adam Bowers who's you know obviously a very well respected developer and agile thinker and I remember one of the stories came out as, a, as an eight and then I said right next story and Adam said well hang on a minute shouldn't we break that story down I said I said no why, why should we he's like it's too big for the sprint I said well I said no it isn't we the team delivered, you know, I don't know, 35 story points in the last sprint. It's not too big, too big for the sprint, All right? And so we got in this like sort of debate about, you know, I was saying, well, it's fine. It's eight points. We don't need to break it down any further, right? Because, again, like I suppose my my inexperience with with that whole thinking and philosophy at the time was just we have a, a team capacity of number of points we deliver. So if we've got an eight. As long as that, you know, as long as that doesn't dominate the sprint, as long as it's, uh, you know, small enough that it's can be brought in, then I don't see an issue with it. I wasn't in the slightest thinking, why would we not slice some of the risk out of that and see if there's something underneath that we can deliver that de-risks, you know, delivering this thing. And I just, it just wasn't the thing that crossed my mind at that time. This is, and this is only experience and different environments can bring you that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it's. Um, I thought, you know, people still obviously talk to me about the no estimate stuff. It's, you know, I, I kind of, I suppose I moved away from it a little bit over the over the last few years. But it's for me, it's the, the topic is so like it just it comes back to haunt you. It, you can't avoid it. Like, actually, I kind of joke 
I joke sometimes to say that, you know, I, I call it Killick's Law, uh, that every conversation about software turns into a conversation about estimation. You can't have a conversation about what software, you know, we're delivering something, it always turns into, oh, how long is it, how long is it gonna take? Every single time. You can't really avoid, avoid it. It's, you've got to try and figure out techniques and ways of making things better. So, um, yeah, it's funny. Gamba, just by watching your tweets and the conversations that we've had, that um, you're maybe considering a, a job change or even a career change recently? Oh, <laughs> I consider a career change almost every day. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, there, there is a lot of... Um, I think there's a lot of dysfunction in our industry. There's a lot of crappiness. There's a lot of unethical stuff that goes on. Um, and it, you know, it, 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 uh, it can affect you, you know? Um, so, uh, and I think the nature of what we do, where we're the ones who are expected to be full of energy and bring change, and uh, that's, that's tiring and emotionally draining. And, you know, when your people are, you know, it's, because again, the nature of what we do, people are constantly defensive with us and skeptical and, and you're having to, you know, try and be the lead by example in how you deal with this. And it's not, you know, we're human beings at the end of the day and it can be really hard and we sort of can break down with that. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I think like over the last few years of doing coaching and processy stuff, kind of got back to the point of just going, well, I miss, I miss just doing things, creating things, being part of a team doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, exactly, um, that creative process and, and just, yeah, like not feeling like you're just talking about process and culture and everything else, uh, actually contributing something real. Um, and because, because the beauty of that is you can, you, can, you can get joy from changes in how people approach things that bring them more joy. Without having without having the role like specific role of coach or yeah. you know anything else, so yeah, partly why I wanted to this year just you know just get get my teeth stuck into a role that was more just in the product development space. You know, I'm a technologist at heart, I'm a product developer at heart. Yeah. Felt like I needed a bit of a break from just mm. coaching. It is hard. I think I've, I've come to find peace with it. By doing different things. Yeah. So running a company means it gives you a holiday. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think as I get older, I realise you can't actually change people. Mm. So you've, you've got to sort of help them unlock if they, how much they want to change. Yeah. They, where, where they want to go, and then, then you don't feel so kind of anxious about they're not getting there for us enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, they're spot on. You can't change people. We shouldn't even try. Um, again, let's focus on what it is we're trying to achieve and, and do what we can to make that happen rather than worry about other people not understanding not, not understanding things or not getting things. It's like, you know, so what? At this point, someone dragged a table across the cafe and you can't hear the question I asked, but it was, if you were born in a parallel universe, and you didn't have the education or experiences that you have had, what do you think that you would have done instead? Oh, look, well, I, I flirted with um, a couple of things actually when I was younger. Yeah. One was uh, being um, some kind of musician. Yeah, right. um, so I, I play keyboards and piano. Yeah. Uh, I always sort of thought I'd be really good at, you know that sort of incidental music they have on TV shows and, and movies as well? Yeah, right. You know how, like, on, you know, like a Master Chef, right? When they're like, you know, when they're cooking and there's this music, you know, this dramatic music going on, right? Um, I'm quite good at that kind of uh, that kind of stuff. Um, so that was one. Um, I did work experience as a sound engineer, like a record, yeah, like a record producer. <laughs> uh, well, I ended up just making the tea pretty much every day. That's all I ended up doing in the, in this, but. Um, so I flirted with that. I also flirted with uh, becoming a professional snooker player. Oh, wow. Uh, so I was very good at snooker when I was younger. Oh. And um, again, it's one of those things you have to make the choice. Am I going to spend, you know, every day, six hours a day practicing so that I can become a really good player? Or do I just keep it at the level of enjoying playing with friends and 
you know, I suppose the, 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 the pressure to conform in society and go to university and get a degree mm. and kind of overwhelmed me and, and, and didn't end up doing it. Um, but um, I'd love to, like, you know, if, if I was given a magic wand and I was able to pick a, pick a career, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be in IT. It wouldn't be in IT. Um, it would be, yeah, it would either be like a, or maybe, yeah, it would either be like a rock, rock star, like a rock keyboard player. Um, or a, or a uh, yeah or a professional player. snooker player or a fresh, yeah professional pool player something like that. So it's like the Olympics, um, you have to train that much, but instead of getting up at five o'clock and swimming lanes to be a swimmer, you're actually yeah, you've got it. Oh yeah, the, the, the standards, particularly in England, so high. But so I was a really good club player. So like you know, I would I was probably one of the better players in my club. But then as soon as I came up against you know people from other clubs in the region suddenly the standard is just ridiculous and you know like so in order to get, have any chance of getting anywhere you just have to basically commit yourself to it and just practice for several hours every day and that's all you do god no no because because um, well, aside from yeah, aside from the random element of it, the, the biggest thing, the biggest vari variation in, in sport uh, performance is the, the pressure of the situation. So you know they don't have to worry so much about you know well, as much as athletes do in terms of fitness and everything else. But actually, the the mental like the, the psychology of the game. One of the things with snooker, it's, 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 there's not too many sports in the world where when your opponent is at the table. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, if you're playing, if you're playing tennis or you're playing, you know, soccer, and your your opponent's doing really well against you, you can make changes in your tactics to try and improve your, your chances against them. If you're sitting down and your opponent's at the table, there's nothing you can do. Well, so if if your opponent is just cleaning up the table frame after frame, and you have to then, when you get your small chance, when you get to the table, you've got to make it count. That is what differentiates the, the really good players from the, you know, from the just your, your club players, right? And the consistency, so you know, a long pot over 12, 12 foot long table, yeah. rather than being able to get you know, five out of 10, to be able to get nine out of 10, right? Yeah. Which the, you know, the top players will be able to get nine out of 10 of these long pots. As a club player, you'd get three or four of them, right? So it's those kind of things which, which only come from just ridiculous amounts of practice, mental like the calmness under pressure um yeah so no you can't perfect it and yeah. um, one of the things actually one of the things i miss from home is there's not a big snooker is what's well, I, I actually tried to set up a snooker meetup one time couldn't get any interest at all like there's a bit of like there's a little bit of a pool scene a little bit but in terms of snooker there's like nothing there's like there's like one um team league which i joined one once but it was like out of a sort of three hour evening you'd get to play maybe like you know 10 minutes and it's just kind of like this is there's no like singles league like that's what i wanted to find is a league where you can just play against different people each week couldn't there's nothing so yeah whereas in england there'd be a dime a dozen like so i'm kind of missed that as well yeah yeah tell me about twitter life you're a little bit of a tweeter yeah, God, it's such. I mean, it's shocking. I think, I think I've, I think I've tweeted something like seventy thousand times. Seventy thousand. When I when I actually look at that, I just. It's actually ridiculous. Because I, I I think I, I, I one time actually divided it. I like counted the, added up the number of days since I started and divided it up, and it was, it was something ridiculous, like an average of like five tweets every day over the space of like, was it now, eight years or something since I've been joined it. It's like. Um, so yeah, it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's a weird, so I've, I've um, uh, I got rid of Facebook months ago. Uh, yeah, well, this is the thing is that, um, so, it's not that it's well, well, I'm, yeah, yeah, I have to say, uh, there's something about it's very compelling, I, you know, uh, I, 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 it's difficult to put your finger on what it is. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of thing I like about it. Yeah. There's a lot of negative stuff on there. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's increasingly so with kind of seeing that, yeah. which is 
one of the reasons I was like, I just put that one in. Yeah. I didn't want to see that, it was just like, oh yeah. my god, I'm spending more time looking at news articles than I don't know. Yeah. And that I don't want to look at. Yeah. Then my friend's pictures, which is what I was yeah. trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot that's positive about the platforms. I find it fascinating the way that the platforms have gotten so big and then become so yeah. unpopular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people are still on their own too. Yeah. But their reputations are. Yeah, it's a lot. I think. I think. I think the appeal of it, of you know, particularly you know, you're sitting on a train or whatever, yeah. and you can just, you know, it's quite interesting. Especially over time, you end up curating who you follow. So everything you read is interesting to you, or almost everything. Yeah, and so you know, and it's and it's so you know because it's bite-sized and consumable that appeals to my brain. Like I'm not a big reader. Like I, I, I struggle to read you know things that are bigger than a short blog post yeah. I, I need to really you know get motivated to do that so um, so I tend to actually listen to audiobooks instead um, you know so I particularly like it when I'm you know if I'm working with a client where I'm driving into work it's a good opportunity to listen to audiobooks um, but um, yeah like I, uh, to be quite honest with you yeah I I if Twitter was just taken away from me, I don't think I, I like. I, I think I could just stop using it. Uh, but I suppose I suppose I enjoy it. That's why I keep I keep using it. But um, uh, there was a time. I mean, probably yeah, in the no estimates days, 2012, 2013, where I was really, really using it a lot. Uh, and to be honest with you, the platform has given me. You know, a lot of the network I have today, yeah. and a lot of the work that I get, is based on um, based on Twitter. So I've actually had people recommending me for for work who I've never even met before. Yeah. They're just people from Twitter who yeah. who, know, who, who know my work, and mm. um, which is incredible, really. It is. And it's cooler than LinkedIn, by the way. Yeah, well, I mean, so I, I use LinkedIn as well. Um, no, look, it's a pain. It's a, oh. look, it's a pain in the ass, but like, I do use it. Yeah. In fairness, I, I, you know, I, I've always. For the last few years, I've used that as my, that's my home for, look, anything you want to know about my career and um, recommendations and stuff that I've produced, it's all on LinkedIn. Mm. Um, I've recently moved that all onto my website as well, so I have that there. You know, so in theory, I don't need LinkedIn. Yeah, so it's becoming less and less useful, but. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, I don't know what it is about Twitter. There's something there. and. And I actually thought when they doubled the uh, character limit to 280, mm -hmm. I actually thought I thought that might be the uh, that might be the end of it for me. I might stop using it. But actually, funny enough, I think I I, I prefer it. It actually yeah. in, increased my um, engagement with it yeah, somehow. Okay. Um, I suppose it was less frustrating. Maybe one thought it was just that little bit too small that there was sometimes you're trying to craft yeah. something and you couldn't quite get it in 140. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So you'd end up spanning it over, you know. But now, of course, threads are a thing now, aren't they? They're a yeah. massive thing now. I don't think I've ever threaded. But, um, oh, I've done a couple, but oh, yeah. 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 Um, is there anyone that you'd love to meet that you haven't met, like in your, in your kind of professional spheres? Um, I'd like to meet Ron Jeffries. Mm. We've had lots of conversations and debates over the years. Um, uh, on Twitter, but he seems to vacillate from very grumpy to quite softening and yeah. sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is. Look, I say, uh, and it's, what's funny is that you kind of you develop this, um, I suppose, perspective of, of what the person's like. It's yeah. almost like when you listen to a radio DJ mm -hmm. and you hear their voice every day, and you start forming this kind of like moulding this personality around them, what they look like, and everything. And then when you see them in real life, you go, "Oh my, that's not them." That's, yeah. Um, it's kind of like that with Twitter is that, you know, whilst I know what Ron looks like, just his, you know, I've seen kind of all sides of him on there. Yeah. And I know that at heart is a really, really, you know, gentle, good person. Mm. And he just gets grumpy like, like, <laughs> like everyone else, right? And he's, I've been at the sharp end of a lot of his, you know, grump. Um, uh, but yeah, I'd say out of all of the people in the agile sphere, he's the one who most what he says and his techniques and way of thinking most resonates with me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's actually amazing really that I've never met him. Yeah. I mean, um, 
or never even seen him in, com in a comp well I've tried that before but it, well the thing is well, he always says oh, I'll need a lot of money um, and yeah are, are what, the manifestos the entries, like, well, they are but like so like Alistair for example is quite happy to fly yeah. around but Ron you know that flight mm. he he'll want, he'll want a lot of uh, <laughs> we could start a Kickstarter <laughs> yeah we might have to yeah yeah, yeah but no he's, uh, he's good I, I'm actually going to um when if if and when one day I finish my book, yes, I will um, I will ask him to do the forward. Yeah, I'm hoping he will. Oh, look! I, the the problem is with me. I'm a extremely generally unmotivated person. I don't believe that. No, no. I think you've run a marathon or something. Oh, you? I have. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Gen that's why I say generally because. I'm going to call you out on that. <laughs> Unmotivated people if, don't run. No, no, no. But, oh, but I, this, I became motivated. Yeah. For a by a specific thing. Yeah. But gen in general, like if there's nothing that I need to do, mm. I won't make stuff happen. Generally. Mm. Uh, I. I, I, I you can call it, call it what you want, you can call it lazy, but um, I have a natural tendency to do nothing if I don't need to do anything. Yeah, I really thought that it couldn't get noisy. Really <laughs> <now>. <laughs> um, I know what you mean. Yeah. My, my grandfather used to say, like, if you need anything done really efficiently, give it to a lazy person. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how I feel about myself. Yes, too, like. I do. I, I, I do find... Look, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm extremely... I take what I do extremely seriously and... Like I'm a perfectionist of what I do. Mm. So when I'm doing something, I will make sure I do it like so that I am really, really happy with what I've, what I've done. Mm. But um, it's, it's, if, there's, if there's stuff that I need to do, I will, I will do it. And, I, and actually, I'm at my best when I've got a decent amount of stuff going on and I feel quite motivated to... Um, but there is a too much level, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Like I like to have enough. Yeah. Enough so that I think well, I can't spend too long doing that because there's yeah. things coming. But if, once it gets over the top, yeah. then it becomes overwhelming. Yeah. So things like meetups, like when I, asked to do, I, I get asked to do meetups or whatever, yeah. um, like sometimes I'll kind of go, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in a bit of lazy mode at the moment. Mm. So I should actually say that I'll do this because yeah. it will, I'll then, I'll then be annoyed with myself later that I said I would do it, but I will do it. Yeah. And this is exactly what's happened, right? This, I promised to do this meetup and then you know, in the lead up to it, I'm like, oh God, why did I promise to do this? I've got too many things going on, yeah. but you know what, I'm gonna do it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna back out of it. Yeah. Um, so I do sort of, I'll, I'll give myself little things that, that are happening in, not, not in the immediate future, but happening a yeah. few, so that, it, so that I do have, yeah. yeah, it kind of gets me out of that, you know, pulls me out of that mode where I'll just quite happily just sit on the couch and watch Netflix. Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, but yeah, when the, if, if there's things I need to do, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I love that feeling where I've got stuff I need to do. Yeah. I just find it hard to to create that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, look, I'm I'm a shocker in terms of reading. So oh, sorry, writing my book. Um, well, I'm a shocker with that as well. <laughs> well, I did. Um, I, I will write. So I will write the book before I die. That's uh, well. I, um, it's look. I have I have made decent progress with it, but it's stalled a little bit. Um, I the way that I, I operate, I go through phases of um, motivation. So same with blog blog writing. I'll do nothing for months, and then suddenly I'll just spurt out five or six over the couple of weeks um, this, this what will happen with the book is that one day I will wake up and I'll go I really feel like getting into it. and once I get into it again I'll then probably then write several chapters and I'll go through a period of maybe a couple of weeks where I'll do lots of it but the thought of and it's terrible because earlier in the year I was inspired by someone who tweeted the fact that you know if you only all you have to do is write 200 words a day and you've written a book in three months right but even with that uh, I just haven't. Yeah, it's 
So. But I think 200 words a day is not the writing of the 200 words. You've got to link all of those together. And that's yeah. That's brain work in the background as well. But that's what she said is, she said, don't even worry about that. She said, oh, yeah, on your bad right. days, just write 200 words. Yeah. On your good days, you'll go, oh, okay. Well, either on your good days, you might write more words and yeah. you'll be able to link things yeah. together more. Um, have, you read, have you listened to it? Yeah. Oh God! You know what? You mentioned to that to me oh, when we I? caught up for coffee a while ago, oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because he's so disciplined as well. That's an audio. Okay. Well, maybe yeah. I'll, I'll get that one then. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a goodie. Yeah. Yeah, but Dorothy Perkins, I think she wrote a write a book. Yeah. And she said the same, but she said get up by the thousand words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before you do anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I w look, I will. It will happen. Um, yeah. It's there's definitely part of the issue is that on an almost daily basis I get more and more material for this damn book it's, yeah. it's, you know yeah, it was originally going to be called 20 dysfunctions 20 estimation dysfunctions yeah. and how to avoid them and I sort of I put, you know I put sort of 20 in and then I'm like well hang on there's, there's also this and there's also this and there's also this could, it can, could end up being 50 uh, estimation dysfunctions um, so there's just so much yeah there's so much scope of uh, dysfunction out there that um you know, so I don't know. <laughs> it could be, it could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but look, it will happen, and when it happens, it will be really good because I'm a perfectionist. And yeah, it is. The, it is the greatest joke. And um, uh, I, I again, like, uh, I, I rather than estimating it, what is, what's better for me to do is say, I will accomplish. You know, I'll be at this point yeah. by the end of this year, mm. rather than how long will it take me to finish the book. Mm. I just don't know. At the moment, it will take me infinity because my my uh, throughput is zero at the moment. So. Um. It's funny. Uh, every summer holiday, I have a yeah. summer holiday. Yeah. Maybe this would be the one. Then you can write a book. Maybe I will write on summer holiday. Yeah. No, exactly. I have a new, so um, my buddy Indra. Um, she always keeps asking, how's that going? Do you do any writing this weekend? And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really good to have someone that, and she does it in an aggy way. Yeah. It's just, um, she goes, oh, I think I've got this And it's like painful every time she reminds me. Um, anyway, it, it's just great to have another person that's a little bit involved in it. Yeah, no. I... Really and, um, well, I'll tell you what will help is, so um, next week, I'm skating, so I've been doing five days a week at Toyota. Yeah. Next week I'm skating down to four days. Yeah. You don't really get much brain space. No. So I'm hoping with having that day, I'm going to try, what I'm going to try and do is dedicate at least say, a couple of hours mm. on that day yeah. to the book. And then if, if, if I'm feeling more productive, then I'll do more, if, yeah. but I'll try and do at least, yeah. so at least I'll start chipping away again. Because yeah. I think once I do start chipping away again, it will start reigniting all of the stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'll start just dumping out again. Um, let's say I can very easily just quickly splurge, you know, a thousand words will just come out of me. Um, uh, but I have to actually be, you know, it's what all the writers say, advice. They just say, just put your hands on the keyboard and just start typing words and you will, don't sit there and go, oh, you know, this whole thing of writer's block. If you sit there and try and think about what you need to write, it won't happen. So you're better off just sitting there and just writing anything and then and then uh, and then you're on your way you've, you've sort of yeah you triggered the it's exactly the same with anything it's the same it was the same with running you know when i started that and i wasn't doing anything um it was actually a friend said something that kind of upset me like he was joking he, uh, it upset me and i was like screw you i'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start running and prove that I can. It was, it was something, it was something about like running. It was running 4K, and he made some joke about me not being able to run 4K. And I was like, I was like, you're right, I can't run 4K at the moment. But then it kind of niggled away at me, and I sort of, I was like, I'm, I'm gonna bloody do this. And then, so my goal was to just be able to run 4K. Of course, once you start running. And then you run 4K, and then it's like, oh, well, since I can run four, why don't I try and run five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, kind of the Forrest Gump, right? Since, I'm, since yeah. I come this far, I thought I'd just run, run right? 
So you, you just keep on like adding, and then before you know it, you're running half marathons every weekend, yeah. and then you go, hang on, if I'm running half marathons every weekend, why don't I book a book, a, book in a marathon? You know. So it's just, uh, it's actually um, the like. It actually reminds me that one of the original concepts that I was hearing a lot um, back in the day as to what, you know, one of the, the sort of core philosophies behind Agile. Yeah, this concept of art of the possible. Yeah. I can't remember how, why I heard it in this context of Agile, but yeah. um, uh, it got me, like I really liked the philosophy that, you know, and it's so true that something that currently seems impossible mm. um, can become possible purely by just starting to do really, really small things each day. Um, even if it, it doesn't seem like that thing is actually a step towards the broader thing. So I, so for example, when I started running, the, the thought of running a marathon would be just impossible, mm. right? Uh, and it, well, it, not just, it would seem impossible, it is impossible. Mm. Like if I had, on the day that I decided to start running, tried to run the marathon, I would have failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wasn't even talking about marathons. I, I, I was just talking about, well, I'm going to start running and I'm just going to start you know, um, run slash walking around the tan, and then the next day I'll try and run a little bit further, and then a little bit further, and a little bit further. I had no aspirations of doing anything more than that. I was just doing what yeah, I was doing. Yes. Um, and then one day you wake up and you go, a marathon is possible. <laughs> so that concept for me is what like is is a big reason, is a big thing as, as, as to what agile philosophy is about. Yeah. It's about it, it, something that. You know, often we often we tell ourselves this thing we're never going to be able to you know build this thing for this amount of money or you know solve this problem for this amount of money, and by actually realizing that sometimes things that seem impossible uh, and are impossible now become possible just by doing little little things that are you know little things which are um, good things to do, good habits to do, can suddenly make the impossible possible, and it happens every single day. It's not, it's not just a theory, it actually happens. So, um, my, you know, my son, he, uh, so he plays um, football for Bentley Greens and um, beginning of the season, he was, he, was not, he was only able to juggle the, you know, the juggling with the ball. He was only able to do like seven or eight juggles. And his coach said to him, by the end of the season, I want you better do 100 juggles, All right? And so he was, oh God, I'm never gonna do that, that's impossible, blah, blah, blah. So I said to him, okay, well, what we'll do is um, each day you go outside for five minutes maximum and you're just going to juggle the ball. Like, so we'll start with, say, six, right? Once you've done it six times, twice in a row, then you come in and, and, and we'll record it. If you don't accomplish it in five minutes, that's okay. You, you come in in five minutes and that's okay. It's just one of those days, it's a bad day. Okay, so come in, okay, I did six. Okay, so we noted that down, six. Okay, so tomorrow we're gonna to try seven. So again, seven twice in a row. Yep, get seven twice in a row. You know, the next day you'll go out there and go, oh my God, I can't do it. I've, I haven't been able to even get five, you know, five. Don't worry. Next day come out, okay, yeah, I've got seven now. Okay, great. And the next day, um, you know, he'll come in after like 30 seconds and go, yeah, I've got eight. Okay, brilliant. He's like, should I continue? No, 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 stop, stop. Just stop, you've, you've, you've accomplished your goal. Mm. After three months, he could do uh, 100. Wow. Um, a month later, he, he got his record, which was 850. So, so, he did a hockey so we are, we're about three quarters of the way through the season. Now. Like, so he accomplished this uh, a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, so the goal, the impossible goal of getting to 100 by the end of the season, now he could quite realistically have a, you know, he could set himself a thousand goal or or you know, start doing that fancy stuff where you catch it on your shoulders and all that kind of stuff. So, the that for me, you know, the the the, the what we do in our in our coaching um, uh, job is exactly this: is that it's not about oh let's set ourselves this this big goal and then like try and incrementally get there. Mm. In fact, just just start doing really really small habits. So just just the habit of doing something good can actually. By doing that habit, then you then you then want more. You then go, well, I'm I'm good at this now. I now want this, and you start just naturally wanting to step forward, and then before you know it, you you have achieved something that seemed that would have been impossible 
you know, um, before. And that for me is the essence of coaching and it's the essence of the sort of agile philosophy and why we do, why we do what we do. Mia, <laughs> thanks so much for your time. No it's worries. Been lovely chatting to you. No worries. I'm sorry about all the no problem. I was the one who suggested the plate was probably a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was the Little Elephant Cafe. Give them a little plug. Yeah, it's a great, it's, it's a fantastic their, cafe, by the way. 20 minutes beyond their closing time. Well, that was Neil Killick. I know Neil pretty well, I thought, but I still discovered some new aspects to him and how he approaches his work, his clients and his life. I found it incredibly interesting and I hope you did too. Sorry about the sound quality. I am sorting that out this week and the fine people at Rode Microphones are fixing my frayed ass wire for me for free, which is great. You have been listening to the Weekly Reboot, your regular Friday debrief of things you've heard and seen coming from the Agile community here in Melbourne and beyond. Please feel free to get in touch. Thank you for the lovely feedback I received from Richard Lewis-Shell this week, friend of the podcast and technology leader at MeBank. Richard enjoyed the Andy Kelk interview a lot, and so did I. If you want to get in touch, drop us a line at rebootme at rebootco.com.au or you can email me, alex at rebootco.com.au. Thanks for listening and we'll be back in your ears at 4pm next Friday. Ciao for now.